Welcome to the Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn of Houston Public Media. And I'm Eric Skelly from Rocco, the River Oaks Chamber Orchestra. And this time we're talking about Richard Strauss's Elektra, Eric, which debuted in Berlin in 1909. Yeah, it was kind of controversial when it debuted, too. It was, it's a prime case of expressionism, German expressionism, which means that it, you know, <laughs> it's not always pretty <laughs> because the subject matter certainly isn't. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a direct expression of the, of the, uh, the dark uh, story of, uh, of this daughter of the house of Atreus. And, um, I remember reading at the time, Anastina schumann Heink, who was the great, great German contralto who, who mostly performed at the Met and here on these shores. She was kind of disparaging of it because she said we were, you know, shrieking like maniacs and she didn't go anywhere near it afterward, <laughs> you know, basically declaring it unsingable at the time. And she said we were a, a set of mad women. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the libretto is by Hugo von Hofmannsthal. Right. Strauss's longtime collaborator. Right. And it's, you know, it's one of those wonderful uh, stars aligning just right when a, a, a composer and a librettist come together and they create magic. And, and these two really did. And, and this, is, this is Strauss in his post-Wagnerian mode as opposed to the neoclassical mode that he would adopt later on and, you know, that we hear in, in works like the Rosenkavalier and Capriccio and, and, uh, and works like that. The libretto is based on the Sophocles play. Right. And it's set in Mycenae mm -hmm. in antiquity. Right. Ancient Greece. Immediately after the Trojan War. One act. One and done. One, <laughs> one long act that actually can be broken up into, I think it's seven different sort of stages or segments. You can, but there's no need to. I mean, basically, this is a, about a, a two-hour opera. It's about, the, it's about the length of an average movie. So the backstory is important here. Very true. Because we have... Clytemnestra, we've mentioned. Mm -hmm. She was married to Agamemnon. King Agamemnon. <laughs> Easy for me to say. King Agamemnon. Right. And so after the Trojan War, Agamemnon is returning home, and he's having some trouble getting there by sea. Now, before he left, as the fleet was leaving for Troy, there was no wind. There was no wind to blow the sails of the ships because... Agamemnon had done something to offend, I think it was Artemis. The goddess the, Artemis. Yes. yes. So the curse, her curse was that there was no wind. And so in order to appease the goddess so that there would be wind and they could sail off to Troy, Agamemnon sacrificed his daughter. His eldest daughter, Iphigenia. But he still has three other kids. Right. So you've got Electra. You've got a, he's got another uh, daughter, Electra, another daughter, Chrysotomus, and then a son, Orest. When he comes back, Clytemnestra, who was pissed that he'd killed Iphigenia, has taken up with a lover, Aegisthus. And she has installed him as her consort, etc., in the palace and is, you know, living the life of husband and wife. But and because she's so angry, when Agamemnon does return, she and Aegisthus plot to murder him. And they succeed in doing so. They murder him in, in his, his bath. bath with an axe. Let's just stop and take that in for a moment, how 
what a brutal way, you know. Well, I mean, he had been gone for 10 years. True. And he hadn't sent any postcards. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're, you're right. And, of course, the murder of Agamemnon has horrified all of his remaining children. Well, and here's an interesting thing. I had the privilege of getting to interview one of the great electras, uh, Hildegard Behrens, before she passed away. And I, w- I, was, I was asking her about you know, her motivations for how she, how she played the character. She hypothesized that because Electra in, in this opening monologue that she has in this opera, she describes the murder of her father in vivid detail. I mean, blow by blow. She was a child at the time. And so Hildegard Behrens hypothesized that Electra must have seen it. She must have been secreted away somewhere and hidden and watched the whole thing happen. Which, I mean, it's, it's, it's speculative on the one hand, but it makes a certain amount of sense on the other. I mean, that she would know the details of this because certainly the only two people who really knew how this happened and what happened are her mother and her mother's lover. They're certainly not going to tell her. (laughs) So how else did she know of this? I just thought that was a really interesting detail and, and it's, it's really kind of colored the way that I view the opera ever since. So she has this sort of childhood trauma and after Agamemnon is killed, right. Clytemnestra and Aegisthus, they sort of clean house. Orestes is banished. Well, he's secreted away. He has a tutor who's, who's sort of his guardian. And he spirits Orestes away and takes him into hiding to spare him, you know, from his, from his, his mother because they, they were afraid that she'd do Kill away him. with him as well. Right. Electra is forced to become a servant in the palace. Yeah, I mean, in, in the course of the beginning of the opera, you get the distinct impression it's not even so much that she's forced to, it's that she chooses to. She is so appalled by her mother and what she did and so disgusted and, and uh, she is obsessed with avenging her father that she chooses to bed down in the kennels with the dogs at night, for instance. <laughs> As you do. As you do. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's the state in which we find her when the opera opens. And what about Chrysotemis? Chrysotemis, it's it's interesting to see how she's played production to production, but basically she's kind of the ultimate survivor. She bends with the wind however it's blowing in order to kind of survive. So she she still seems to be we I mean we we don't we never see her together with her mother, but we we get the impression that she still is in her mother's good graces, however, you know, that looks like at this point in in time. So as the opera opens, we are in the courtyard of the palace and there's a well in the courtyard and some of the servants are are drawing water and they are discussing Electra. Right. And basically four of the five of them think Electra's crazy. Uh Uh-huh. And there's one 
who defends defends her. her. And for her trouble, she's beaten. She's beaten, indeed. One of the things that they say is that, you know, Electra is sleeping with the dogs. Yes. And howling with the dogs. Right. And then Electra emerges. Right. This is the big monologue. It begins with the words, Alain ve Gansalain. All alone. I am all alone. And then she goes on and she talks about, she calls, to her, she calls to her father and says, where are you? And then she goes into a detailed account of his murder, how he was murdered in the bath. Talks about the blood flowing purple from his wounds, uh, you know, from the axe wounds. And then there's a, a second part of, of the monologue in which she then looks forward to the day when she can avenge his murder. And she talks about... She and Orestes can yes, avenge his murder. Yes, she's waiting for Orestes to return in order to exact that vengeance. And she talks about on that day how she'll dance, how they'll sacrifice you know, his dogs and his horses to him, and, uh, and it will be a glorious day. They will dance around the bodies of their enemies. Yes. Presumably two of those would be Clytemnestra and Aegisthus. Oh, boy, howdy. <laughs> <laughs> and then Chrysotomus arrives. And it's interesting when she arrives, it's interesting to notice Electra's reaction to her appearance. She's kind of disgusted. <laughs> she says, well, Electra has all these plans for revenge. Yeah. And... Chrysotomus plays no part in them. She does not want anything to do with that. Yeah, she doesn't even call her by name. She says, Tochter meine Mutter, Tochter Clytemnestra's, daughter of my mother, Clytemnestra's daughter. She basically looks at Chrysotomus as a collaborator with the enemy. Right. The enemy being her mother. But Chrysotomus tells Electra or warns her that there are further dangers in store for her. Yeah. I mean, she too wants to get out of the, the sort of the prison that is the palace, but they're both scarred by everything that has happened. Very much so. And I mean, not just the murder of Agamemnon, but presumably going back to the sacrifice of Iphigenia. Right. Life is not a, uh, a bowl of cherries for these ladies. And Chrysotomus goes on, and she has a, a bit of a, a, a monologue of her own, and it's, it's this beautiful... Straussian soaring soprano line where she she dreams about someday being able to marry and bear children and lead a normal life because her life right now is anything but normal. And then there's a, the noise of steps off and Chrysotomus says, oh, Clytemnestra's coming. I'm not sticking around for this. Uh -uh. But Electra's but Electra like, is. <laughs> I want to have a word with mother. Uh-huh. And then Clytemnestra emerges onto the stage for the first time. Yeah, and, and in most productions, she's depicted as this decrepit, uh, desiccated you know, figure of a woman who once was beautiful and now is just... Well, she's led this life of debauchery. Completely, yeah. And so, you know, time has not been kind to her. Mm -mm. 
Uh, no, uh, yeah. As Indiana Jones said, it's not the years, it's the mileage. And she's got a lot of mileage. <laughs> and in fact, she's almost unable to keep her eyes open. And can't and walk by herself. She has to have... A confidant. And yeah, and the train bearer, you know, sort of prop her up. And the first words out of her mouth are, what a terrible fate I have that... I should be given a daughter like this. <laughs> nice mom. I bet, I, bet I bet their birthdays are real cheery. No kidding. <laughs> and then she, she's left alone with Electra. And she tells Electra that she is being troubled by dreams. Mm-hmm. And Electra's listening, and and you can you can tell that Electra, there's something going on there. She's setting this woman up. She's being uncharacteristically nice to her mother, and listening as Clytemnestra unburdens herself to Electra and tells how she's just uh, a shell of herself. She she can't sleep, you know, and her her dreams are filled with with horrible, bloody nightmares, and she keeps trying to you know, sacrifice all these animals to appease the gods to give her some peace, but she can't find any. It's like Lady Macbeth. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and what Electra does is, because Clytemnestra is looking to Electra to give her a solution. Advice. To help her. Right. Advice. And Electra gives her advice. The thing is, it's one of those, it's like the Oracle at Delphi. It's something that you could take in several different ways. What she actually says is there is a woman whose death would alleviate your suffering. And she makes Clytemnestra kind of drag it out of her and ask question after question to get closer and closer to the answer. And she says, well, is this woman uh, a stranger or is she someone in the house? And, and Well, she's... She's someone you know very well. <laughs> and then, you know, she keeps asking questions and keep asking questions until finally Electra just, it just bursts out of her and she says, it's you. you. You're the one that has to die. And I am going to rejoice over your dead body when Arrest comes back and avenges Agamemnon's murder. So, And, and you have this as that... Exchange comes to an end. They are in each other's faces. Completely. And they're interrupted by Clytemnestra's train bearer and confidant. I mean, because Electra is, at this point, is like gloating because she has really rattled her mother. She really hit her where she lives hard. And the train bearer and confidant come in and they whisper something to Clytemnestra. And suddenly she bursts into this maniacal laughter and calls for more light, more light, more torches. And she, she's, she's borne off by the train bearer and confidant, and she's still just cackling wildly all the way. And Electra is just perplexed. What could they have told her? And just at that moment, Chrysotomus comes running in and says, Orestes is dead. Yeah. Two strangers just arrived. And brought the news that Arrest is dead. Dragged to death by his own horses. And then a servant comes out asking for a horse so that he can do what Clytemnestra has asked him to do 
and that is take the good news to Aegisthus. Yes. So here's Electra. Her plan has been shattered because her plan was to, you know, wait for arrest to come back and then they get their revenge. So now that's, that's out the window. So she turns to the only source she the only think other of. possible ally. Yeah. And that's Chrysostomus. sister. <laughs> because on her own, Electra could not take out Clytemnestra and Aegisthus. She, because of the lifestyle she's been leading, you know, sleeping with the dogs and, and basically a life of self-abnegation, she's too weak. She physically cannot, she's weakened. She couldn't do it herself as much as she wants to. So Electra pre presses her case upon Chrysotomus and says, you know, help me do this and you can have everything you want. You can ha have the life you want, the husband you want, the babies, you can have it all. And she really, she, re she again, she gets right in Chrysotomus's face and pushes her and pushes her and pushes her to agree to do this until Chrysotomus just says, I can't, and just runs off. And Electra curses her. Sei verflucht. So then she says, nun den allein. All right, alone. I'll do it by myself. And she starts looking for the axe because she had taken it and she found it and she secreted it away, but she can't remember where she buried it. And she's digging, trying to find the axe. She's digging like an animal. Which completely. is completely, you know, which is really the role that she has taken on exactly. among the dogs. And here she is digging in the dirt in the courtyard looking for the axe that she buried. Right. And then she notices a stranger watching her. Watching her. And he asks her if she works in the palace. And she says, yes. <laughs> and then he says, well, I have business with the queen. And. We have brought her some bad news. Her son, Orestes, is dead. And Electra realizes that these are the strangers who came and delivered the news. And that Chrysotomus was talking about. That Chrysotomus was talking about. And she questions him, you know, with this, this tear in her voice because she's, she's grief-stricken that her brother is gone. And she talks to him and keeps talking to him. And as she's talking to him, he realizes, the stranger realizes, who this is. This is Electra. And he says to her, he asks her, are you a member of the royal family? Yeah. And she says, yes, I'm Electra. And then he says, well, okay, in that case then, here's a piece of news for you. Orestes is not really dead. Yeah. And she's, and she's still, she hasn't recognized him until finally he says, even the dogs of the palace recognize me, but not my own sister. Put two and two together. It it's means it's Orestes. It's Orest. Exactly. And she, I mean, you know, in a giant orchestral, you know, burst of energy, she screams his name, Orest. And then you have this passage that is the only, <laughs> the only moment of calm and sheer beauty. That lyricism that Strauss was so capable of. Absolutely. And it's in here in full force in this recognition duet. 
she she says his name over and over again in this caressing manner with the orchestra caressing his name every time she speaks it. But she won't let Orestes hug her. No. Because she says, you know, back then when we were all living happily together as a family, I was, you know, I was beautiful. But I have renounced everything in light of the murder of Agamemnon. And this is the estate that I have chosen to put myself in. Right. But then they both focus on revenge. Yes. The revenge He's, for Agamemnon's death. He is all in. All in. And they they you know they sing of of their uh, of their resolve to make this happen to make Agamemnon's murder avenged and he goes off to do it his tutor comes out and takes him into the palace right and electra is left outside waiting waiting to hear that the first part of the revenge has taken place. In other words, Orestes has killed Clytemnestra. And this is this is Strauss can ratchet up tension like nobody else. This is very much like Electra's sister opera Zalome. Those moments where you're waiting for the head of John the Baptist to come up from the cistern, and it's just so tense. It's just as it's just the same here, and it, and she's. And she's getting more and more agitated the, the longer she has to wait. And she suddenly remembers, oh, I forgot to give him the axe. Ah, and she's, she's berating herself and berating herself until finally she hears this blood-curdling scream coming out of the palace. And it's not Orestes that's screaming. No, it's not. It's Clytemnestra. And what's Electra's reaction? Strike again. <laughs> At that point... Aegisthus comes into the courtyard. Yes. And Electra says, oh, hi, Aegisthus. Let me, let me take you into the palace. Yes. And first he's like, why are you being so nice to me? <laughs> <laughs> and she completely continues to basically cloy him to death <laughs> and lead him in and open the door and lights the way and shuts the door and then waits. And the next thing we hear is Aegisus appears at the window screaming for help. Help me, murder, murder. And then he says, can no one hear me? And Electra screams back, Agamemnon hears you. <laughs> And you hear, and you hear the last blow that does Aegisthus in. So they have achieved their goal. Yeah, they have avenged the death of Agamemnon. Yeah, and Chrysotomus, who has discovered that Orestes is back, she comes out, but she's not quite as happy about everything as Electra and Orestes are, and. Electra just gives this Dionysian howl, dancing around like some sort of demented creature, because, in fact, I mean, she's gone mad. She has, and she says, there's nothing left to do but dance. And she dances, and she dances, and it becomes more and more maniacal and more and more frenzied until 
the I mean, the orchestra works it up to a fever pitch, and she's and you're and you're just waiting for you know the the tension to release, and then boom, she drops, and she drops down dead. She's dead. Her body couldn't sustain that, and once once her once her reason for living has gone, has gone. She's got no reason to live. None. <laughs> and she drops dead, and Chrysotomus rushes to the door of the palace, calling out Orestes' name, and then... And finds the palace doors shut, shut to her. And the opera ends with the musical motif that Strauss uses for Agamemnon. Yeah. Because Agamemnon is sort of the unseen presence throughout the whole opera. Exactly. So what was it, Eric, that made this so controversial in 1909? Well, in 1909, I mean, to our ears, it doesn't sound as um, cacophonous <laughs> as it did to the audiences then. So it was the music. It, it was. was. But it's, I mean, we have to say, okay, first we have to say the title role on this is a voice wrecker. It is one of the most demanding roles in the dramatic soprano repertoire. I mean, there's Electra, Brunhilde, Isolde. You had better have, you know, a voice of the size to be able to carry over this. I mean, the orchestra, there's 110 in the orchestra. Right. Right. 110. <laughs> the orchestra is huge, and a lot of that is brass. This orchestra makes a huge sound, and you'd better be able to punch through it or soar over it one way or another, and there just aren't that many people who can do it. And so, you know, and you've got this really dense orchestral texture um, going on with, with all this complexity, this post-Wagnerian complexity, and... You know, the audiences in 1909, apparently, or at least the singers, <laughs> really had, a, had, uh, had some difficulty with that. Electra came after Salome. Yes. And Salome, of course, had caused an outrage, not so much because of the music, but the because subject. of the subject matter. Yeah. Strauss knew how to uh, get his audiences riled up. He did, but he created some absolute masterpieces in the process. And then, of course, we go on to Der Rosen Cavalier, which is far more acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> at least it's prettier. <laughs> Not that this isn't pretty. This score does have absolutely beautiful moments in it. Because and he it really is... captures the, the, the tragedy and the insanity that Sophocles' play is all about. Right. And it, is, it does employ dissonance, but it, it's, it's not atonal. It is, it's very tonal throughout. Um, and it's, it's exciting, you know, when it's really well performed, it is a visceral experience like none other. Richard Strauss's Electra. That's this week's Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. Thank you for listening.